look marvelous. Hello, and welcome to the spring line here at All Things Georgette, where we are scouring our wardrobes for insight into the theme of fashion. As always, wearing our love for the Regency romance novels of Georgette Heyer on our white muslin puffed sleeves. Whether your favorite hero is wearing highly polished Hessian boots or a many-caped driving coat, or like a certain skillful niece of mine, you have an eye towards recreating your very own version of an 18th century Regency-style morning dress, Georgette's descriptions of Regency-era clothing has much to tell us. And on that note, I open wide the wardrobe door and invite you inside. As always, I am your consummate hostess, Marsha, and today I am joined by ladies Sharon and Sandy, a gathering of, a partial gathering of the tribe of my blood relations. So, ladies, what say you about fashion in Georgette? Well, I think fashion in Georgette is, it's in every one of her books. Uh, It is prominently featured. It is used as a, as a stand-in for more, for a fuller description of a character or a character's circumstances, a character's home, a character's place in society. It is, it is a, an element of the character that immediately telegraphs an enormous amount about that character and their place in the story. And, and Georgette is so skillful at her writing that you don't really even notice that that's what she's doing, but she definitely is. Um, She's very, very good at it. I think it's a, it's integral to her stories, every single one of them. As an example, I might um, talk about how much I love the descriptions of, um, this is in Frederica, and um, there are two, well, there's three young ladies who are coming to a come-out ball at the um, house of Alverstoke. Um, he has he has done this, um, he's woven together this ball um, to, to, um, really to um, to annoy both his sister and his, uh, I guess it's his cousin's wife, who are both um, hangers-on and clingers and constantly needling him in their different ways. And both of them have been wanting their daughters to have a ball at his house because it's so grand and he's so fancy. And he's annoyed by both of them. But Frederica comes into his life and also asking his help for the come out of her sister. But is perfectly happy to not have his help. And, and so he's piqued by this, the fact that she, she could take him or leave him. And then he sees her younger sister. And her younger sister is, of course, a, what do we call her? A diamond, diamond of, of the first, first water. water. Right, a diamond of the first water. And so he sees a way to uh, get back at both his sister and, and um, cousin by bringing her to the come out and thus... Uh, with her absolute beauty and charm canceling out both of the other girls. Um, and there's a meticulous description of all, th- well, all three of the girls' dresses, but especially Karis, who is our, our what do we call her, a, a lovely ninny hammer, um, <laughs> the diamond of the first water, who has a very pleasant disposition. 
and um, and clever fingers, as we find out. So she actually makes her secretly makes her own come out dress versus um, Louisa, Louisa Buxted, who is um, daughter Jane. Oh, the daughter Jane, right? That's Louisa's the sister, and and her daughter Jane is following in her footsteps. Is um, homely and obnoxious, and um, and 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 bullheaded, and insists on having the most hideous dress, um, and and that doesn't become her at all, and wearing wearing pink with rosebuds in her hair when when um, Alverstoke, who's a man of taste, says. She really should be should be dressed in um, in yellow instead. Um, and and um, meanwhile, Karis has uh, is is a vision in white with simple lilies of the valley in her hair and and um, and and sewn on little bits of pearls that fake pearls that they got at the um, at the something something rather bizarre that's that's the, where cheap. People go for cheap things, and and exactly. uh, somebody like Louisa Buxted would never have set foot. And uh, and of course, you know, Kara sweeps everybody off their feet. And Louisa, it, her the mother of the of of the the the, um, the bumptious Jane is left fuming. So great, great uh, example of how fashion is used as as uh, weapon and description and all the rest of it. But even more to the to the point, two other things in that. First of all, Cher, you're very quiet. Can you oh, hold am your, I quiet? Yeah, hold your better? closer. Or she something. sounds good to me, Marsh. Okay, it's just me. Okay, never mind. Um, Continue. There are two other things about that particular scene. Um, one of them is that Karis's dress that she has made herself, which of course would be incredibly déclassé if anyone knew that she had made it herself. Um, um, it is simple. It is elegant. It is in the first quality of taste, as opposed to Jane Buxted, who is depicted in this pink monstrosity, but also covered with large pearls and embellishments that mark her as a person who has vulgar leanings and wants to display wealth, which you had to have wealth in society, but you were not, particularly as a young debutante, you were not to be displaying it yourself because you would be taken as being vulgar. Um, right. And that goes along with um, with tittering instead of um, properly laughing, whatever tittering is and why ever it's bad. And, um, and what's the other thing? Oh, Putting yourself forward and being too arch are things are are are, are traps that um, that young ladies fresh out of the schoolroom often fall into. <laughs> but the other thing in that ball is that Frederica, who takes one look at these girls and knows why the Marquis of Alverstoke has set this up, um, she is she comes to the to the ball arrayed in orange crepe and a very tasteful dress that, again, Karis has made. But by wearing orange, she has immediately signaled that she is not considering marriage. She is not looking for a partner. She wears this orange and a small, discreet cap, lace cap. and Ale she goes Alexandrian cap. And she goes and sits with the dowagers, and this irritates Alverstoke, who feels that she shouldn't be 
hiding herself away, but she, her choice of fabric and most certainly color is an instant sign that tells everyone in that ballroom that she is not putting herself forward, that she is not pretending to be of a uh, of an age to be making her own debut, even though she never made a debut and she's not married and has no prospects thereof. It is a way that Frederica um, sets herself in the background and and um, displays Karis more obviously as the person who is a potential member of the marriageable set. Um, there's another. There's another really wonderful um, description. There are so many, but. Uh, the question of fashion and how it telegraphs the character makes me think of a passage in a civil contract, um, which is a a story of a of an heiress named Jenny Chole, whose father is a vulgar merchant who is fantastically wealthy, <laughs> and she is desperately in love with Adam who has come back from the wars grievously injured and who is nursed back to health by his own beloved, the willowy and beautiful Julia, who is a friend of Jenny's from school. And Jenny would come and sit with Adam as he recovered and read things to him and write letters for him and and be desperately enamored, enamored of him where he could see no one but the willowy Julia. And there and Adam ends up having to marry Jenny much against his will because his father has run through the estate and the entire family has become impoverished, um, which but they did. You're didn't. right, Shash. I know the exact scene you're talking about, which is when he is introduced to her again after having forgotten all about her. And he sees her dressed to the nines. Her father, who's this vulgar merchant and doesn't really understand the ways of society, insists on putting all kinds of ridiculous golden tiaras and things all over her. And she's a sort of a homely person. And, and our hero looks at her and, you know, he's, he's, he's putting himself up to this situation unhappily, but realizing he has to sacrifice and do this. And he sees in her, he sees the misery of her wearing all of this stuff like a Christmas tree and his heart goes out to her and his heart softens because of the ridiculous things that she's wearing and how he sees that, that um, his, it, that's the, that's the first softening of his heart towards her is that is seeing, seeing the misery of, of being dressed up like a Christmas tree. Well, that he understands that she knows how bad she looks, but she's doing this because she loves her papa Mm -hmm. and her papa wants to show her off and thinks she's the most beautiful thing in the world. She, having gone to an aristocratic boarding school and rubbed shoulders with the ton, understands that she is hopelessly vulgarly dressed, that she is a short, squatty person who does not belong in the kind of dress and the jewels that he has insisted on and that she's humiliated, but she's also a person whose heart will lead first and she honors her father. Later on, she's going to be, she's married to Adam and she's going to be presented at court 
And the court dresses always are a very interesting part of Georgette because they're so ornate. And Georgette always makes it plain how impossible they were to wear and what you had to do to deal with the train and the and feathers. And ridiculously expensive. Yes. And, uh, and how you had to back out of the presence in a dress with a giant train and curtsy regally in a, in a huge dress with, with panniers and many petticoats and all the rest of it. But, but Jenny is going off to court and, uh, Adam's acerbic aunt takes one look at her and says, no, you're not going to wear this. You're not putting on this shawl. You're not putting on this this thing. And she has a rather titanic argument with Jenny's father, who's come to see her off, who, of course, would never be presented at court himself because he's too vulgar uh, and smells of the shop. But but the the aunt makes it very clear to Mr. Trolley that Jenny cannot go to court covered in the special pearls and diamonds and all the stuff he's bought for her because she will be perceived as vulgar and tasteless. And that will turn the tawn off of any chance of anyone accepting Jenny out of pity for Adam since her wedding. Mm -hmm. So the aunt understands that, that those, those elements of fashion are are literally going to um, have a destructive effect on not just Jenny, but Adam and their potential children and potentially Adam's sister, who is also unmarried, and and just strips them all off of her. Um, so it's a, I would say an interesting little side from that would be that these great aunts and, and, um, and terrifying dowagers and these elderly ladies, they can get away, depending on how high their tone is, their, their you know, rank, um, they can get away with dressing vulgarly. Often you'll see, you'll see these, um, she'll describe these terrifying uh, duennas as, of, of, of high society as wearing these dreadful purple things or whatever. And, um, and it's sort of the elderly lady's way of still um, um, putting forward their character and saying that, you know, and, 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 and they dress in this sort of eccentric, it's considered with them, it's not considered vulgar, it's considered eccentric. And that's, that's a difference to be made. I would, um, I want to take the conversation. I think it's fascinating. And I, I love the civil contract. I think it's really one of her best. Um, but I, I want to take the conversation in a slightly different direction. And that is what it meant to me to learn to read this extensive description that Georgette Heyer uses uh, of clothing in her books. And when I started reading them, I, I used to just skip over the descriptions because I found them tedious and um, and unnecessary, but it took me a while, Lady Sharon, to understand what she was doing through that description. And once I sort of matured into my readership of Georgette, that is, once I understood that she was using it as yet another device for revealing character, um, I began to take an interest. And it is fascinating, the the level of detail. I mean, she talks about what the hems, what color thread the hems are stitched with and, uh -huh. um, uh, you know, and, and the quality and level of embellishment and, and the kind of stitch that was made. And I mean, just incredibly, um, excruciatingly almost, um, detailed description. And I have not read the biography of, 
of Georgette Heyer, but apparently she was a very well-dressed woman herself. And she, I, I would imagine that she was interested in clothing and she recognized that all of these details go into creating the world, which is what we keep, the world building that she's doing with these novels, um, which is something that we keep coming back to again and again. Um, but she uses discussions of clothing, descriptions of dress, and not just women's dress, I would point out. There's also um, a level of, of dandyism in the men that always somehow is a barometer for their character. Mm-hmm. And I would say none of the heroes are dandies, but they're all exquisitely dressed. Um and they all know how to make an extremely delicate uh, and complicated uh, neckcloth fold. Uh, they know their Hessian boots are polished to a mirror-like shine. <laughs> they're, you know, that's right. Or this, that, or the other. But if someone is too covered with um, with buttons, and I mean, there's all kinds of uh, ornaments that men wore. Um, that are the more ornament ornamented they are normally the less quality uh, is their character rings That's, and fobs and yes. and, uh, and, yeah. and 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 um, boutonnieres and stick pins and things like that right right I think that's true, and I. But I do think, and and there are certain standards in Georgette that will telegraph as well for men's clothing, like the many caped driving coat, which indicates that you are a member of the Four Horse Club, and therefore a a a regular what does it call out and outer mm-hmm. in terms of riding or driving horses. But I think the rules, possibly even, possibly even a Corinthian. Yes, but the rules of that governed women's attire were vastly more complex. And you're right, Marcia, they really form a basis of one's understanding of that world that Georgette creates so brilliantly. And it takes you some time to read enough of them to, to get the, the signaling that she is employing using those fashion references. There's also the whole issue of kind of fashion dominance, of not wanting to be seen in the same dress twice, mm. and of of who your cast-offs go to and who has to accept those cast-offs. And people who are poorer, um, the, the tricks that they go to to, to – reimagine dresses so that they will do for a second season or a third or a fourth or whatever it happens to be. Um, and the, the, the people like Cheris are few and far between who can make stylish, tasteful clothing on their own without a modiste to, to show them how to do it. Um, and those, those signals of a dress that's been re-embellished or, or the sleeves have been changed, or something are immediately picked up on again by the the taste leaders, and will consign the wearer into a whole different category of of <laughs> eligibility. Um, but it's it does take a while. It takes a while to to get the idea. There's a wonderful, wonderful scene in Pharaoh's daughter 
where the heroine has come back from the peninsular wars where she was with her father until he gets killed. And she finds her aunt has been helping them financially by by starting a gambling house in her own house. And the, the aunt is incredibly inept. And so Deb steps in and tries to help the aunt, tries to put things together, thus making herself one of Pharaoh's daughters and and making herself ineligible completely ineligible to the to be in polite society um which she takes on because she wants to help her aunt and uh, uh there's a young lord who comes into the gambling house and develops a big crush on her and he is the ward of Max Ravenscar who is a tough very wealthy member of the nobility and Ravenscar of course is is appalled that that the young his ward would like Deb, a, a, a wench out of a gaming house, and he first he tries to buy her off, and she's mortally offended. And then throughout the book, they engage in this war back and forth with each other. But one of the ways that that um, Deb takes one of her turns of revenge on on Ravenscar is by inviting him along with his ward um, to an evening at Vauxhall Gardens. And she makes sure to get a a table at the very front where they will be seen by everyone. And she gets her her henchman who was on the peninsula with him with her to find a very vulgar widow to bring with them. And then she herself creates this this dress which has gigantic tobine stripes on it and it's bright green and red and she wears a hat with these bobbing cherries on it and she wears a patch on her face and she <laughs> all of these things are instantly <laughs> telegraphing that she is appallingly vulgar and probably a prostitute and she does it in order to humiliate and irritate Ravenscar but it's it's a hilarious description of this thing. Oh, she got she's draped herself with weird chains that are clearly false, and and she does it with absolute gusto, and in the full knowledge that just sitting in the same box with him will just annoy him to no end. And um, it's a great use of fashion. But again, to really appreciate that passage, as you said, Marja, you've got to have some familiarity with the rules governing um, dress, particularly for young women. But um, Lady Marcia, it makes perfect sense to me, having lived in the same abode with you when you were a teenager, um, that you would have um, skipped over those passages. I recall Lady Marcia's um, main, main outfits were overalls and hiking boots in teenage years. <laughs> Indeed they were. <laughs> unlike, unlike Lady Sharon, who wore very fashionable mini skirts and, um, and, and uh, fancy shirts. So. Hey, excuse me, overalls and hiking boots were very fashionable in their day. They were, they were. Let's not get carried away. It's just, I happened to choose a fashion that was completely easy to live in and that I, <laughs> I could go out in the garden and get muddy and it would only look better. Um, you would never have gotten tickets to All Max, Lady Marsha. No, I would never. But I, I want well, to get back to all Lady Lady Sharon. You had um, you had classmates um, from the upper crust that would wear incredibly expensive shirts. So you and you poo pooed them as well. Yes, they I, did. I have to say that, that, Sharon, this notion of a level of knowledge about fashion, um, it it's true of the reader, but it's also true of the characters. And I'm remembering 
in Frederica also this wonderful moment when um, uh, Frederica is is poo pooing something Elvistock is trying to say and saying, "Oh, you just don't know um, women, right? Or you don't know women's clothing." And he says, um, "I beg to differ." And he goes on to tell her her outfit, and he can he can tell, for example, that his her her boots are made of jean and not kid. Uh, he tells her that he can tell that she dyed the feathers in her hat to match her dress. That's um, right. That it's been repurposed, and his his level of knowledge of of female fashion is a marker of his overall sophistication, and uh, in some ways, making him it makes him worthy of her respect. She walks away respecting his opinion and his point of view a lot more after that conversation. And it's also a mark of his great wealth and the borders that he puts up around himself to, pr- to protect himself from mushrooms, as they call them, or people that are going to try to con him in some way. Um, and, and a part of that con would happen through clothing and language and all the rest of it, which is why people mm-hmm. in, in positions of great wealth and power had to, if they wanted to hold on to it, and, and we have to, they have to be on the, on the lookout for the slightest lapse. Huh. Well, it's also a, a marker of his familiarity with female intimate apparel is also a marker of his familiarity with prostitutes because he's familiar with taking on and off those clothes. He knows what's underneath a lady's outer garments because he's had mistresses. He is a man of sexual experience. And that is also what is being telegraphed to, to uh, Frederica. And he's doing it knowingly. He's doing it to tease her. Mm. That's right. And, one one of the very first scenes with Alvestock is him uh, getting fed up with an, an Im, the importunate uh, mistress, and he dashes her letter into the fire, in which she asks him for four white horses to pull her carriage. And oh, that's he said, right. I think I've seen enough of her, and he signals his valet um, and says something, you know, pay her off. I gave her a diamond ring, and that's enough, and that's the end of her. And she must we, get her congé. That's her congé exactly. Um, which, of course, brings us back into the, the gender dynamics and politics at work. Um, so fashion is embedded in, in all of it in so many different in so many different levels of storytelling in these novels, I'd say. I would I would point out um, just before we step away from the from the the uh, topic, uh, the singular case of Bo Brummel, who features oh, yes. in a great many of Georgette's books and who was the person who he came from nothing. I think he was a, he was a tradesman's son or something. And I, I can't remember the, the specifics of his story, but he definitely was a real person. And he rose to immense prominence as a leader, the leader of, of men's fashion um, at during his heyday by being incredibly fastidious about cleanliness, about tasteful uh, and restrained ornamentation, coats that fit precisely, no bags or sags or obviously were made by by excellent tailors. He was the one who steered fashion way away from from the the macaronis and the ostentatiousness that marked uh, a great deal of 18th century 
um, men's clothing into 19th century, which really followed his example. And he made himself so powerful that he would he would uh, offer contempt to people even as high as the Prince, Prince Regent, who would be very deflated if Brummel didn't like his waistcoat or his snuff box. And Brummel had the power to make or break by the lifting of a finger. And, um, and he is portrayed by Georgette as being very cynically aware of the irony of his situation. And, uh, um, but being a man who, who uses his power, which is completely based in fashion. He refuses to get on a horse because he might get muddy. And he, there are all kinds of affectations he has, but he preserves his position of power through fashion. And in fact, he did that in actual life until he went completely bankrupt and owed a huge amount of money and ran off to France and died of tuberculosis in a garret. Um, but but his power was rooted in in fashion completely. And he's an interesting character for Georgette because he is a real life historical personage. Uh-huh. Uh, and she concretely places her her stories um, as contemporaneous with him. So he is alive in the imaginations of the characters and some of them, usually the male characters know, know him and they speak of him, but he never, I'm not sure that he ever appears in any of the novels unless he's sort of seen from a distance or something at a ball. He does. He is, he becomes a friend of Judith Taverner in, um, Oh, does he? Is there, is there a dialogue? And he does show up, um, to make a comment or be a presence. And then later after, in fact, the time when he did run off to the continent and then die in a garret, he is referred to as poor Brummel. So he was such a, such a, a major fixture in their world that everyone knew of him. They aspired to, to be his friend, which very few were allowed to be. And, um, but everyone knew how far he fell. Alas, poor Brummel, we knew him well. Exactly. And on that note, my ladies and gentlemen and everyone, we must bid you farewell. Thank you for joining us for this fascinating topic, really, of fashion in Georgette. And we hope you join us next time when we will discuss something else equally ornate and embellished. Ciao for now. Bye. Goodbye.